Okay, welcome everybody. Um, <clears throat> really delighted to um, kick off the Polis Conference um, with a panel this morning, uh, which will be chaired by Mark Thompson. I'm just going to welcome you on behalf of the Media Policy Project, which I run with Sally Routon Lixover. Uh, we uh, exist to create communication between uh, policy stakeholders, policy makers, academia, and civil society. We are publishing today not one, but two policy briefs. Uh, one uh, which is particularly pertinent to the topic today. Um, some people have said that uh, we have not been well served by the media um, in this country in terms of information about how the new system of press regulation, proposed system of press regulation will work. We have a, uh, a guide which uh, explains in very simple terms uh, how it will work. And we also have a policy brief on uh, public funding of private media, how to do it without compromising uh, independence of media. So they're available, they're all free, free to download. Um, I uh, am delighted to welcome the panel which Mark will introduce. I'll introduce Mark. Mark Thompson is um, from the journalism uh, program at the Open Society Foundations and a long-term collaborator of Media Policy Project. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. And welcome to this panel discussion about watching the watchdogs. Um, as Damien just said, I, I work for the, uh, for the journalism program at the OSF. Um, and as he's also said, we're, let me just repeat, we, we, we are a supporter of, of the Media Policy Project. The aim of this panel is really twofold. We want to try and shed some light on the ways that civil society organisations in this country have responded to key recommendations by Lord Leveson uh, relating to the basis or underpinning of the system of self-regulation of the press. And we also want to discuss, in the spirit of today's theme of transparency and accountability, the ways in which civil society organisations that are involved with media standards and with the rights and freedoms related to media and communications reach positions on what might be called matters of principle. Um, the, uh, I mean, talking about Leveson with Damien and others at the Media Policy Project, Leveson, the Royal Charter and civil society disagreements about the Charter, we, it seemed to us that the picture of civil society responses to this fundamental issue at a moment when that issue was and perhaps is clearly wide open to radical reform was pretty confused and confusing uh, for, for my own part uh, I remember a certain sense of foreboding when I opened the Daily Mail just a day or two after Leveson's report was released um, to, uh, to see uh, um, key principles being denounced and Disowned uh, from within civil society, and I, you know, almost before, as we used to say, the ink was dry on those recommendations. So, I thought then we were in for uh, a, a good deal of turbulence, um, and that's indeed proven to be the case. <coughs> now, since then, the disagreements, the takings of position, the unexpected alliances have multiplied and resounded. The fact of those disagreements and alliances and so forth, and indeed the fact of the impression of confusion that I just mentioned, may be a good thing, of course, a sign of healthy plurality in this segment of the civil society landscape. But even so, it seems worth just considering questions of accountability and representation. 
Uh, we, we know who and whose interests the press industry represents when it expresses itself about the Leveson proposals. We know whom MPs represent, likewise. But whom and what do civil society organisations represent? Who are they speaking for? To whom are they responsible? And how do they operationalise that responsibility? I should just say before moving on that my own organisation, the OSF, does not really have a dog in this ring. The OSF is a civil society organisation active on media freedom and media development, mainly through grant giving, and we do a bit in the UK, but we have not taken a position on, on these issues. We don't generally take positions of that kind. Now, we're very lucky to have two such well-qualified speakers to launch us on our way this morning. Thomas Hughes is the Executive Director of Article 19. He's got a, more than 15 years' experience working on press freedom, uh, media development and human rights. He was Deputy Director of International Media Support, IMS, a very well-known Danish agency, for five years. And he's also worked in the intergovernmental sector for the European Commission and the OSCE. Uh, David Aronovich is as you know, a journalist, broadcaster, and author. Currently a columnist for The Times, he's written for many papers over the years. He's won the Orwell Prize for Journalism and been a columnist of the year for what the papers say. David is especially qualified for today's panel by his position as Chair of Index on Censorship. So I've asked Tom and David to prepare a few opening remarks to get things started. Tom, can you please tell us about Article 19's position on the core Leveson proposal and how that position was reached. What do you think the disagreements among civil society organisations have been about? And what do you think their impact has been? I mean the impact of CSOs on the wider debate about regulation of the press and the impact of the disagreements on that impact, so to speak. Finally, should CSOs be doing more to clarify mutually and reciprocally their positions of principle? And is there anything you think British CSOs should be learning and could apply from other countries in this respect? Um, Mark, thank you very much for the introduction, um, and thank you to LSE for the invitation. Um, it, there is a, a small degree of irony, I guess, that um, academia has gathered together CSOs on a panel chaired by uh, a private donor to talk about accountability um, and to uh, have some transparency about the positions that we reach. And I think um, David and I, we might quite enjoy inviting academia back one day to having a similar panel to ask them about their own positions. Oh. I have one follow-up. <laughs> but that's, that's tongue-in-cheek. That's um, um, said just to provoke. Um, it is a pleasure to be here, um, and it's a very important discussion. And I think, uh, obviously, because of the... Uh, differences in opinion that we see amongst civil society actors, it's an important one to be had. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to take it for granted that you all know who Article 19 is, so I will spend 60 seconds or less, hopefully, briefly describing who and what we are. Um, Article 19 derives its name from Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, we are an international human rights organisation that specialises in freedom of expression uh, and the right to information. Um, we are UK-based, but spread around nine offices internationally uh, and have been working uh, for the last 30 years uh, very much with a legal and policy-related focus in our work, uh, engaging in international advocacy as well as regional and, and domestic advocacy as well around national legislation and policies <coughs> and standard setting. 
So as that introduction or description of Article 19 would um, dictate the position and the, um, our interpretations of both Leveson and the Royal Charter are very much based around international human rights standards and law. So what I'll do actually in my opening introductions is, is focus a little bit more on um, what we interpret that law to say, or what it does say, how we apply that to Leveson and the Royal Charter, some of the concerns that we have about Leveson and the Royal Charter, uh, and then maybe very briefly a couple of words about um, the civil society positions around that. Um, but then I hope that we would have a more fruitful discussion around those issues. I think those are the core ones for us to discuss here today. So where do we derive the Article 19 position from? Well, I'll, I'll tell you where we derive it from first and then come back to what that position actually is. But very broadly speaking, it's derived starting from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the ICCPR, um, the international treaties uh, and the treaty bodies that interpret those treaties. Um, so obviously very much based around the United Nations, but also regional bodies, regional courts as well, and the European Court, uh, jurisprudence set by that court, uh, and then also best practices around domestic legislation uh, and domestic high courts as well. So there's a very large body of law from which we are taking our interpretations um, of best practice around press freedom. Now, there are three, as we see it, three core issues at stake that need to be considered when looking at press regulatory issues. Um, the first one is that international law allows that freedom of expression may be subject to certain restrictions for the sake of other legitimate interests, and that includes, obviously, the protection of other rights. Um, <clears throat> secondly, that international freedom of expression standards do not prescribe anywhere a specific model for press regulation, so that is not defined by international human rights standards. And thirdly, that international standards demand <clears throat> that any regulation meet uh, a strict three-part test. And those three parts are that they should be prescribed by law, should be in pursuit of a, legit a legitimate aim, and it should be necessary in a democratic society. <clears throat> Thus, the restriction must be proportionate to the aim it is pursuing, uh, and if there is a less intrusive option available, that should be the preferred option. Um, now, when considering these things, um, because we are, uh, I, I know some in the room may wish otherwise, but we are a European country and we do... Um, um, have to adhere to the European Court of Human Rights. So the European Court of Human Rights has um, been very clear around some of these issues, stating that the states have a positive obligation to regulate the exercise of freedom of expression, but, and, and a quote from the court, they must not do so in a manner that unduly deters the media from fulfilling uh, their role of altering the public, um, alerting, excuse me, the public to apparent or suspect misuse of public power. Thus, from, those, um, from, from that position, um, we find or believe that self-regulation uh, is the preferred model, but that co-regulation is also um, applicable and adheres to or does not violate international human rights standards as long as that co-regulatory structure guarantees um, independence of the media and guarantees press freedoms. Uh, and also, very importantly, obviously, the independence of whatever regulatory body is actually established. So four points that we think are crucial when looking at um, press regulation would be independence from government, commercial, very importantly, commercial and special interests, uh, established via a fully consultative and inclusive and transparent process, 
that is democratic and transparent in the selection of members and its decision-making, and that is geared towards promoting and protecting press freedoms rather than focusing on imposing restrictions on the media. So looking specifically at the UK and looking specifically at, obviously, Leveson and the Royal Charter, um, first of all, I think it's worth just reflecting on what self-regulation or regulation actually seeks to um, pursue or ensure. And again, there are three main parts to this. Um, firstly, the protection of members of the journalistic profession. Secondly, to hold them accountable to their own profession. And thirdly, to hold the press uh, outlets accountable to the public. So those are the three main parts that we're looking to ensure exist. There's also part of the discussion uh, in the UK which is very much focused around the fact that there has been no regulation of the press in the UK for the past decades or historically. And this, of course, is something of a misinterpretation of what actually regulation means. Uh, there has been regulation of the press in the UK um, and actually in some cases not very, uh, certainly not uh, in accordance with any kind of best practice. So looking specifically around issues of defamation or libel or official secrets and national security. So we shouldn't start, I think, the discussion from a premise that there's been no regulation of the press in the UK, uh, but we are talking about um, looking at uh, regulation specifically in relation to standards. So interpretations are interpretations around Leveson and the Royal Charter. Well, I'm going to mingle, although they are two different processes, I'm going to mingle them into one just to save a little bit of time. Um, so firstly, uh, our overall comments um, around uh, specifically actually the Royal Charter, uh, one uh, in the um, information that we've put out, one we've recognised that the PCC and self-regulatory structures to date have not been adequate and have to a large degree failed. Um, secondly, that when looking at regulation, there is no single one-size-fits-all model, and there are many different types of um, statutory regulation, co-regulation, self-regulation that are successful, um, but that they apply to the individual social, economic, and cultural circumstances of the country in which they are um, in play. Um, that we believe the Royal Charter establishes a system of co-regulation, and I'm going to come back to that in a little bit more depth in a second. Um, uh, and although the Royal Charter is a slightly arcane and outdated model, it is used in a UK context to try and achieve um, uh, an independent form of co-regulation. Um, so not uh, maybe the best form of uh, legislation, legislative processes, but under a UK context, certainly one that seems to fit the bill. So on the processes itself, um, we express serious concern about the lack of transparency around the negotiation of the Royal Charter, uh, particularly in comparison to the Leveson process, which was a very positive process, a very engaging one, very broad and in-depth. Um, we uh, urge the government to uh, engage more stakeholders uh, and engage in a longer-term discussion around the Royal Charter and not to rush things through in the last in the last stage, as it were, and actually ask for the Royal Charter uh, to be postponed and for further dialogue to be had between different stakeholders, so obviously specifically the press, um, uh, journalist bodies um, and the government, but also experts, academia, NGOs and others as well. So our main concerns around the Royal Charter and around Leveson as well um, are fivefold, really. So firstly, um, that... The, any kind of regulator needs to have a very explicit press freedom promoting 
mandate and that this should be stronger um, for um, any regulator. Secondly, that um, the Royal Charter introduces a model of minority representation by the press on the board. Uh, so rather than um, self-regulation, it's actually independent regulation and that we would strongly advocate for a tripartite model of uh, editors, owners, journalists and the public. Um, thirdly, that the standards code should be drafted uh, not by the uh, external bodies and by the public, but actually by the media community itself. Uh, and that should hopefully be in cooperation with, again, journalists, unions and media outlets themselves to make sure there's strong buy-in to adherence to those standards. Um, thirdly, we have concerns around the group complaints or the allowance of group complaints um, rather than only persons directly affected by um, um, well, uh, or, uh, problems in the press. Uh, and thirdly, around a rather ambiguous terminology around the regime of sanctions um, and to remind um, uh, any regulator that uh, non-financial remedies should always be the preferred option. Quickly on the issue of, very quickly, sorry, on the issue of um, whether there's a division, I would say that if there's a, uh, I would say that generally there's not. I think um, different um, press freedom, freedom of expression organisations are driving towards the same interests of protecting a free and ind independent press and ensuring public interest journalism. I would say that if I think there's a difference, it's one between organisations such as ours, which take a human rights perspective uh, and uh, believe there's legitimate restrictions around freedom of expression that also apply to the press, and organisations which have a more specific mandate looking at press freedom and obviously want to defend that um, to the greatest degree possible. Um, and I'll stop there. Great. Thomas, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for moving so quickly through, through such large issues. Uh, David, can I ask the same questions to you? I can repeat them if you want. No, 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 no please don't. Okay? No, 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 no need. Good. No need. Uh, and anyway, uh, whether or not I touch upon them is almost a kind of matter of chance and happenstance, really. Uh, hopefully, somehow I will. Um, uh, I have a disadvantage and an advantage. Uh, my disadvantage is that I wasn't actually chair of index at the time when we were making the submissions to Leveson. Fortunately, um, uh, somebody who was associated with index at the time, who was, was deeply involved in it, is here uh, and uh, will correct me if I go wrong. Uh, yeah, you will. Um, um, uh, so consequently, I wasn't involved in the detailed discussions about uh, as Leveson firstly uh, came up with his proposals and then as various people responded to it and then as we got into the kind of late night hacked off and the government pizza to, at 2am in the morning stuff, uh, I wasn't really there for that. I was actually in bed while other people were up. So I don't actually have as good a grasp maybe as some people do of some of the, uh, uh, the minutiae of what, it, of what has been decided and what Leveson decided. Um, uh, that's my disadvantage, and my advantage is exactly the same thing. Uh, I don't, so I can attack this, if you like, at a slightly broader level of principle. Um, uh, uh, because, as I understand how Index came about its decision, which, and I'll describe what that is in a moment, it was a mixture of instinct and principle. Instinct and principle is derived from the purpose of the organisation itself, which um, uh, some aspects of which you've just uh, heard. But I just want to very briefly touch on what they are again. Index on Censorship was set up 
by uh, various authors and playwrights and so on at the height of the Cold War uh, to show solidarity with, essentially, and to agitate on behalf of people behind the Iron Curtain who were persecuted or imprisoned or prevented from saying what they wanted to say by regimes that wished to stop them. That's, it's a very simple, straightforward uh, uh, um, birth. Um, what it's developed into, essentially, is an organisation which internationally monitors and advocates in the areas of freedom of speech and freedom of expression, from the press to books to the arts and so on. Um, and what it does is it's not what index does is it's not just looking at the threats to freedom of speech and expression, which are blatant, though we certainly do that, but although, and not just those that are formal, though we certainly do that, but also those that are informal and creeping. Uh, to put it at its simplest, there is always somebody who is wanting to restrict somebody else's freedom of speech. It is absolutely extraordinary, when you look at it from that point of view, how absolutely consistent and constant this process is. And as we move into areas of new technology and new freedoms of expression, we find governments, and not just governments, but others as well, attempting to restrict what other people can say and essentially to penalise them for saying it. It's an ongoing process. So one of the things that Index has taken upon itself is to monitor how that is happening and to argue against it where we think that it is. And not, un uh, not surprisingly, therefore, we tend to, seeing what we do, we tend to set a higher bar um, when it comes to this question of the points at which you may curtail freedom of speech and expression on behalf of these other nebulous objectives which were talked about just now in the context of international law. In other words, international law is no real guide to us about how we uh, look at possible curbs on freedom of expression because there is always somebody arguing that their curb of freedom of expression is somehow within the law and within international law. It's just constant. You see it here and you see it there. So that's the basic level of principle. Um, and that was the level of principle I understood that Index was operating on when it came to looking at the Leveson proposals. Now, I have another slight kind of problem, which is sometimes I tend to mix in what Index thinks with what I think, and they're actually, they are distinct. Uh, I have another set of observations about Leveson, which are if you like, kind of much bigger um, in terms of their in terms of their kind of attitude towards what are the point of historical development we've reached with regard to freedom of expression, which largely says, in fact, the stage we have now got to with um, the capacity of people to communicate. I think the Leveson process was actually irrelevant by the time it even began. Frankly, um, sorry, I was. I really wasn't fishing for that, but uh, uh, nevertheless, I do. But let's assume, and we would have to assume, that actually it is completely relevant and that it has, whatever, w w whatever has emerged from it, has some kind of long, ongoing um, effect upon the way in which we, uh, on the way in which we look at freedom of speech. So what were the specific things that, when the board of index got together to meet and discuss Leveson, being very much part, as they were, of the same, and let's be honest about this, the same kind of general milieu of uh, such organisations, which you could very loosely describe as liberal guardianista, 
you know, because that's essentially the sort of circumstances within which our part one people kind of, you know, uh, if on the radical right maybe containing the BBC and on the far left maybe, you know, Tribune or something like that, sort of, and everything running the gamut from A to B, as the old, uh, as the old saying goes. But nevertheless, within a kind of milieu which, by and large, was not the milieu that um, reads, appreciates, or desires tabloid newspapers or tabloid journalism. Okay. If we look around this room, for example, we will see, by and large, a fairly homogeneous group of people. Homogeneous in attitude, to a certain extent homogeneous in background, maybe not in nationality and so on. To a certain extent, if we're not careful, homogeneous in thinking. Who have an imagination about journalism and about freedom of expression which is broadly similar and a kind of, if you like, a hierarchy of approaches to them which is broadly similar. But we should be conscious that that is not all there is. There is very, very much more out there, and there are very many more forms of expression out there and so on. So one of the things that has to guide a freedom of expression organisation is to admit that sometimes the expression you're seeking to defend is unpopular with you and with the sort of people who you mix with and so on. It's not what you like. Etc. This is quite an important guide to the notion of public interest, by the way, mm-hmm. um, and the way in which some people would seek to limit public interest to, if you like, an almost kind of higher form of approach to what journalism and what uh, and what content should be. Um, anyway, so that's a kind of so that's a, that's a kind of background. But Index's principles when it came to dealing with Leveson were these: firstly, politicians shouldn't ever regulate the press just shouldn't be involved. Um, the press is bound by general laws like everybody else in just the same kind of a way. Uh, people talk about Christopher Jeffries quite a lot. It's quite interesting that Christopher Jeffries had redress through law. Uh, and incidentally, I will say one other thing about the Christopher Jeffries case. Christopher Jeffries had already been traduced by social media significantly, actually before a print edition of a newspaper actually appeared. It's not generally known, but I remember the day extremely well, uh, uh, and so on. And it is ironic to me to see people who are very big defenders of what you might call the of statutory underpinning of the press, um, uh, who I know were on social media on the day of the Christopher Jeffries story broke, saying he looks a wrong un using it as an example of why the press should be regulated. I mean, there is a... I don't say that that is the rule, but I say it is an irony of the situation we're in, that that's those, those sort of things uh, happen. So, the press is bound by general laws. You can be done for all kinds of things as a journalist, that being merely the act of being a journalist doesn't stop you. Like phone hacking is a fairly obvious example. Uh, made ill- formally legal, but made illegal by the regulation of the Investigatory Powers Act of 2000, uh, uh, and from which, incidentally, there is not a public interest defence of any kind, actually. We argue that there should be a public interest defence uh, uh, under some circumstances to the phone hacking. Why should phone hacking be different from any other form of look of gaining information if you believe that it is defendable on the grounds of public interest? Um, but then, we don't believe, therefore, that governments should be involved beyond what the law um, uh, uh, specifies in a statutory framework for the press. We think the press should be completely independent. 
Secondly, we believe that statutory uh, uh, underpinning is precisely what has now emerged from the, um, from the government's discussions and so on. In the first instance, there are exemplary damages in the Crime and Courts Act for those who don't sign up to the uh, Leveson compliance procedure. One of the things that Index has said, and that I think I saw as a journalist as well, is um, there will be, when such a t- case actually comes uh, 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 and is tested in the courts, it will end up in front of the ECHR. Uh, and I wouldn't like to bet at all that those seeking to get exemplary damages will win. I think they'll lose. Second, there's the Parliament lock on the Royal Charter itself. And although there's the talk about the two-thirds majority and so on, that that somehow or other depoliticises it, you have to imagine the circumstances under which, let's say, there is a significant... Maybe a a whole lot of series of terrorist acts uh, uh, and so on. And there is an enormous parliamentary reaction to that... Uh, and so on, and you could quite easily get a situation whereby two-thirds of Parliament could actually, under those circumstances, be brought up to want to make changes and so on. It's not impossible to imagine it, and the question is whether we would actually want to envisage such a situation or regard regard it as uh, necessary. So we don't like that and don't like the Royal Charter. Um, We do like independent self-regulation, uh, as index, although personally I can see some kind of difficulties and dangers as there because uh, frankly you could get the same kind of general mood notion of what is acceptable and what isn't through that process as you can anywhere else and also I kind of wonder going forward whether in the era of um, uh, of constant personal publishing which the internet now provides and the social media now provides it how relevant that will actually be to the way in which people live their lives but nevertheless it's a good idea to have high standards and to say that you want to have high standards and so on but in the end what governs high standards or not is going to be the preference of people to use those outlets that do have high standards frankly we all know it you know uh, it's what everything else depends upon really and if you imagine that it's something else, then I'm afraid that in that case what you're asking people, what you're asking people to do, essentially, what you're, what you're doing, trying to do is to undercut what other people choose to do. Uh, and that is, I think, something of a problem. However, what we would like to see a lot more action on, as we said, is public interest defences in other areas, uh, including the Official Secrets Act and so on, because, unsurprisingly, being a freedom of expression organisation, we also tend to the idea of the greatest possible transparency uh, in order to aid that situation. Now, uh, should there have been, and it's a kind of slight implication, yeah, 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 uh, should there have been a situation in which we... Um, all got together and agreed in a sort of jolly way exactly what should happen. Well, I think that um, what Tom has very well laid out is actually that it's better if there's not, frankly. It was not a bad thing that we took a different view on this and so on. Um, If there had been a consensus, it would have been formed by index saying, this is not our view, we're going to go along with everybody else. I can't see that the world would have been in any way a better place for that happening, and I tend to believe, maybe it's sort of, you know, it's a genesis, I tend to believe in cacophony uh, and, the, uh, uh, and the contest of discussions and feel that it was no bad thing. So we can have this discussion without any degree of uh, acrimony, even if we come to different conclusions, and if we, even if we're going to fight you to the death 
to try and make sure that our view prevails. David, thank you very much indeed. Um, now, uh, before we open this to, to you, let me just say two things. Firstly, um, I apologise on behalf of the Media Policy Project for the uh, all-male panel here. This was not the plan, but our, um, our, 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 our efforts to, uh, to broaden that failed. Uh, secondly, um, when you... Can I ask you please to say who you are when you... I want to speak, and um, and I would ask you to address. I know that, of, of course, feelings uh, and ideas uh, are uh, quite fierce on this matter. Um, please do address the uh, the speakers' points, the points of process, points of principle, um, as uh, pithily as you can, so that we can uh, move on with discussion. We do have to be. We do have to end by five two. So. Um, that haven't been said. Please, would anyone like to start a discussion? S sir. Sorry, sir, you have to... <laughs> <laughs> I speak with forked tongue. <laughs> uh, Neville Grant, Westcombe News. Um, broadly, absolutely support both the speakers in their stance. I just wanted to ask them what uh, uh, self-regulation must therefore entail some kind of sanctions. What sanctions would be imposed on people who, who break these rather vague rules that you've laid down, and how would those sanctions be enforced in law? Thank you. Can I ask if anyone... It will be best, I think, if we take more than one... OK, we... Sir, at the back. Hi, Chester Young from CY Film Productions. Yeah. Uh, I kind of have two questions, really. One thing is, um, why is it now we're facing regulations when, you know, we know what's been happening all along, you know, with the media? And, you know, all this is brought about because of phone hacking, when right now our government is hacking us, you know, spying on us, and why are they not regulated? And the other thing is, when it comes to freedom of expression and freedom of, you know, the media in terms of, you know, people or journalists being able to express themselves and finding the outlets and platform to express themselves. In terms of regulating the media, is inclusion and financial support or a way of bringing other voices into the mainstream media a way of censoring people? Uh -huh. uh, there, was, there was a hand down, down here. Thank you. Uh, Jonathan Hayward from the Impress Project. Um, David, I, mean, I think you're completely right to say most people involved in Leveson, most people in this room don't read tabloid newspapers on a daily basis. I'm sure that's true. But I wonder what relevance it has. What, what is it about the charter framework that means that tabloid, any kind of tabloid journalism would be particularly prevented and I think you're suggesting unjustifiably prevented? Could you give some examples? Okay, that's it. Thank you. We'll take one more question. If, oh, please. Um, it's great to put your hand up when you've actually got the microphones in your hand at the time. Um, one of the... Sorry, uh, you, you are? Sorry, I'm, uh, thank you. I'm Simon Kahn. Um, it, my, my point is directed to one of David Aronovich's comments. I've actually got quite a few I could take, but I'll, I'll just do one. Um, one of the cheapest and, I think, weakest points that people make when attacking the Leveson proposals is to say that because of social media... Uh, or just the internet in general, 
um, it's out of date before it, even, before it even started. But I think if you look quite carefully at what most of Leveson was directed at, many, not all, but many, most of the uh, evils were in fact the process of news gathering, not the publishing of information once the gathering has taken place. So that the, the internet doesn't affect news gathering. The internet just makes it easier for people who, like me, who don't have any news gathering powers to express my opinions online. It's the process of news gathering that is um, fundamental to most of what Leveson was about. And I think if you look at it in that light, it's actually much harder to criticise what he came up with. Thank you. Um, I think we can take those now. There's a question about sanctions. Uh, um, uh, what would they be? How should they be enforced? Tom, could you pick uh, first? Certainly. Well, um, there are two... Um, there's sort of two aspects to that. One is um, assuming we have a regulator and it's recognised. That's an important step, obviously. Uh, then uh, the Royal Charter lays down the types of sanctions, um, including financial, that can be um, um, levied against a media uh, outlet. Um, but part of the comments that I made earlier was that also there's this rather ambiguous um, wording which doesn't define it that clearly, uh, and that obviously by any regulator set up, which, which is recognised, needs to be clearly um, defined. Um, and also looking very much towards non-financial sanctions uh, rather than financial sanctions as a first option, uh, as an absolute preference. Um, then I think David actually spoke about the, the if, if uh, a media does not join, it goes to uh, the Crimes and Courts Bill, then there could be exemplary damages. Although, again, the bill does state, I mean, I have it in front of me, but it does state that you know, this should be a last resort, other options should be explored. I would say that I think it's unlikely that the European Court, it may, if it, it could find, if the damages are excessive, it would find in favour of a, a claimant, but the uh, European Court is not going to find against press regulation, co-regulation as such. Um, so it may find against individual cases where they consider that to be excessive, but considering the wording of the law, um, you know, the UK court's already instructed in that, in that regard. So there were just two different levels. David, do you want to comment on the question about sanctions? Um, I've, I have... What uh, level of sanction should be envisaged under a... Well, I mean, we, we sort of regulate system. As, as I understand index. it, we, we, we already have some extremely detailed proposals about what sanctions under either system uh, would be um, uh, imposed um, by the regular size of the potential size of fines uh, and so on, and the kind of areas that would be covered. And I mean, Index's position has been that it is entirely supportive of, you know, substantial sanctions and substantial redress in the context of complete self-regulation. Uh, and so on. I mean, one of the reasons why this debate has been like it is has been the kind of perception that this wouldn't, in fact, actually happen in the end um, uh, if there wasn't a uh, if there wasn't some form of statutory underpinning and some kind of which is one of the reasons why this business about the uh, about exemplary damages has come forward because 
in practice, the question is how it is you imagine that you would enforce people's compliance with uh, or willingness to impose heavy sanctions. Uh, I just want to take up, since there's uh, one, one, one or two of the other points, there's been a very interesting kind of subterranean discussion going on on Twitter while we've been doing this, is while I've been doing this. And it comes to the point that Jonathan raises me. And this is, Jonathan, this is what you tweeted earlier. Uh, you said... Dironovich opens by disclaiming all responsibility for an understanding of index censorship position on Leveson. Hashtag impressive. Um, you would be done by my press regulator for so misstating my opening position uh, in such a way, funnily enough. Um, but it is kind of indicative of the way in which... The, and you then uh, subsequently asked the, the question about what examples I had of the ways in which tabloids would lose out. That wasn't my point. My point was the psychological circumstances and background to which the discussion on Leveson, in effect, happened, and the way in which organisations, in a sense, because of the sorts of people who were involved and the way in which people were involved in the discussions, uh, understood and perceived the problem. So, if we... Why is that relevant to an analysis of Leveson or the new child? If it wasn't relevant, then in that case, hacked off. The major organisation has been wasting their time for the course of the last two years. Um, And they obviously don't think they've been wasting their time for the last two years because the entire business, and indeed, uh, the reason why hacked off as an organisation was in there with the government for the 2am pizza thing was precisely because this was a shared perception uh, about what the scale of the problem was, actually. Uh, And I think we all know it. Now, you can may argue that as a result that that will have no impact on what, um, what regulation effectively happens, and that may very well be true. But I was talking about the arguments that we used to create a circumstance by which we now have government involvement or political involvement in, in regulation of the press. That was the underpinning of it. And that, in a sense, was the psychological circumstances, the if you know, social cultural circumstances, <coughs> which Index was facing in the, if you like, or in the organisations okay. around it. What are the examples of specifically tabloid journalism that you think would be unjustifiable? No, no, I didn't... I, I, no, sorry, I have never... No, it is a relevant point because we were asked about how organisations arrived at the position they did and the circumstances which they felt surrounded when they did, and I'm telling you what they, what they were. It, isn't, it, it may not be relevant to your actual judgement, but it's certainly relevant to the arguments that were made for having statutory underpinning of the press. Of course they were. I mean, if you don't think the shroud-waving of hacked off and the sort of, you know, the, the kind of the Hugh Grantism and so on had any effect upon the process, then in that case, we're not living in the same world. It was absolutely crucial to it. Now, I can understand the, the, the hacked-off position and so on, but nevertheless, it was a significant part of it. No, I don't believe um, that, per se, tabloids will lose out any more than anybody else uh, as, a, as, as a consequence of it. I think that they were used as part of the argument for it. But we are opposed, in principle, to the statutory underpinning for the reasons that I've given. I think that point's been, been addressed. Thank you, David. Can I just go pick up the, the second questioner at the back of the room? You're, you, you, you asked whether inclusion... Pardon me if I'm misunderstanding. If... if if inclusion is a means of censoring media. Could you make the point once again and then our, our speakers could... Well, it's, it's in terms of having an alternative voice because we know the mainstream media sometimes as people believe 
So you'd be hoping that a regulatory model would make it easier for you to have a presence. Can you speak, speak yeah, to no, that? I can't, I can't, I can't. The point that you make um, is a very good point. It doesn't actually have anything to do with regulation per se. But it is actually interesting how often, in a sense, it's part of what is behind people's uh, thinking about this uh, and so on, which is... Um, which is that we have a problem with media plurality and so on. It's much less of a problem than it used to be in many ways, partially because, if you like, the kind of grand, great corporations of the business, including the one I work for, wield significantly less power than they did, and there are many more entry points for people as a result of new technology than once there were. Uh, also, in the field that you're talking about, documentary filmmaking and so on, um, there's a slightly different set of organisations um, uh, out there. I imagine that what you want to do is get on the BBC or Channel 4 or something like that or be commissioned by them, uh, and that's a sort of slightly, um, that's a slightly different process. But if you look at it in a, in a kind of bigger sense, the question about people's access to, let's say, in some countries, even to the internet in order to be able to express the most basic opinions or to get the most basic levels of information is a very big issue. And in many ways, it can be as big an issue as the question of direct censorship or chilling uh, itself or, 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 attempts, or attempts to interfere with press freedom or um, freedom of expression can be. I mean, put simply, if you don't have any access, you don't have any cap capacity to express that freedom of expression more widely. So I think your point is well made. Thank you. Uh, Tom's going to respond, I think, on, on your first question about why, why now. Uh, yeah, um, a, a good question. Um, I think actually the, the LSE briefing there has a very good timeline in it of the very um, repetitive deja vu nature of this discussion over the last 50 years. So I'd recommend you to have a look at that. And uh, it's certainly not a new discussion. In fact, when you read some of the statements that have been made and the different um, um, reviews that have been made of this over the last decades. It's, it's very familiar reading. It's very familiar territory. Um, of course, why, why now specifically, you know, phone hacking, really dowler, so on and so forth, it's come very much to the public fore. Um, if, if there's a, um, uh, something um, disappointing about that, that, these issues are as much about police corruption, for instance, as it is about the media, which is less of the story and more has, focus has been placed on, on regulation as a discussion. Um, what I would say is that, um, coming also back to your point around commercial interests, is that regulation, co-regulation, self-regulation, is as much about um, media concentration of ownership and protection against other vested interests, including commercial interests, as it is about independence from the government. And that's a very important part of this discussion, which is often not looped back to. Uh, and it's an important part of the factor when you consider the different voices that are speaking on the topic. Tom, thank you very much. Uh, Simon, I hope you don't mind. I, th I think we'll take your remark as a comment rather than a question. And uh, we have a question at, at the back. Two questions at the back. Hi. Yeah, Evan Harris. I'm the Associate Director of Hacked Off, an organisation not represented on your panel, but which has been mentioned. And obviously, I don't have time, and it would be boring to reply to every error that's been made. But let me just take one example um, out of respect for David, because I know he believes in evidence. Uh, Hugh Grant, 2AM, government, pizza. Not one of those facts is correct. So all four of the facts that you cite... Obviously, you took your information from the press, OK? So I could understand where you got it from, but all four of those facts are incorrect. Who was represented in that meeting 
was Christopher Jeffries, okay, by us. And you, I, I'm happy to arrange a meeting for you with him so he can explain why his life was destroyed by four front pages distributed to everyone he knew in, in his life where he lived and not by Twitter remarks, hurtful though they are. And he also explained how, even though he was able to get a lawyer and eventually get some financial remedy, what he wants to see is it not happen, that, that contempt of court and obvious libel are prevented by proper self-regulation because you could have a, if you convicted every murderer, it wouldn't be a better place particularly. You should try and prevent the crime to start with. And that's what the history of self-regulation has failed to do. But the, what I first wanted to indicate, this is my question, is around, uh, because I respect David's, uh, the nature and, and, and sort of style of David's approach here, it's, it's helpful. And this is the, his view that politicians shouldn't regulate the press, they simply shouldn't be involved. Two points. I've searched high and low on Index's archive for any criticism of the appointment by the press of Labour peer, then SDP peer, Lord McGregor, followed by Tory peer, former Cabinet Minister Lord Wakeham, to run their self-regulation, then Tory peer, Baroness Buscombe, that I thought, surely when they appoint another former Tory Cabinet Minister, Lord Hunt, and then he gets advised by a former Labour Cabinet Minister, Lord Smith, uh, and another Tory peer, Lord Grade, all supervised by the guy in charge, a Tory peer, Lord Black, that Index would say this is unacceptable interference by politicians in self-regulation of the press, but there has been silence. And the Royal Charter, even if you could get a two-thirds majority to change it, because it's a voluntary system, if the Charter was changed in a way that restricted the press, the self-regulators, the independent self-regulators that were recognised, would de-recognise, and therefore, in the, at the next two-yearly audit, which is what it is, it's not a very fast way of controlling the press then, there would be no regulator. There would be, therefore, no incentives or penalties, and we'd be back to where we are. So not only is it difficult and slow and ineffective, it's counterproductive for the politicians to change the Royal Charter to restrict the press. It would not work. It would make matters worse as far as they're concerned. So I suggest that those people who argue that the Royal Charter is anything other than a protection from politicians haven't understood the way it works. Uh, thank you very much. We have also a question near you at the back, if it's related to that. And we have, following that, a question which I think will maybe be last. Well, well, we'll try and fit two in over here. Uh, as, as quick as you can, please, Damien. Thanks. I, I want to ask about what you're going to do from here on in. Uh, we're going to see the announcement of a, a, a chair for, for IPSO. We're going to see um, uh, the recogniser body uh, being set up. And then there may be a process through which one or, or, or several uh, self-regulatory bodies seeks recognition. Um, I presume Article 19, we've seen, we, we've seen that the, the, the value of a human rights uh, approach to these debates are going to engage with that process. I'll be interested to know what you're going to be looking for, what you're going to be asking for, how you're going to engage. Um, I'm not sure whether Index will be engaging. Maybe they'll be recusing themselves on the, on the basis of their past position. Um, but, but likewise for index. How, wh how are you going to engage from here? Got that. Thank you very much. There are two questions on this side, one at the back first. Yeah, my name is Julie. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about this. Bear with Even us. if I'm on broadcast, I don't want all the mics. That's it. 
Both of them? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Okay. That's right. All right. <laughs> yeah, I'm a journalist. And uh, most of the things that we speak about are very important. But um, I just wanted to focus a bit more on a sub- subject which is very different. And this is state regulations of different countries of the media. I will just come back home here in the UK, talk about um, legislation like, you know, the Official Secret Act, talk about de-notices which are issued to editors by the government, especially during time of war and all. I I, I was actually just thinking about your your organizations and all this campaign or focus of uh, freedom of expression. Uh, What policies do you have to deal with issues like this? Thank you. We have time for a very quick 10-second question from the front, and then I'll ask you both for extremely rapid responses. Uh, Martin Moore, Media Standards Trust. Um, It's really a question to to David. Um, uh, I'd be very grateful for a clarification of Index's position on Ipso, uh, the regulator being set up by many of the news publishers, um, particularly in the light of what you said about it wasn't only governments that could constrain press freedom and and freedom of speech, but also commercial enterprises. And certainly by my reading of the Ipso documents, the commercial enterprises and the major publishers uh, have an absolute uh, control of that regulator. And does that, do you think, from Index's perspective, represent a threat? Thank you, Martin. Uh, Tom, you have about 30 seconds. <laughs> um, uh, onward engagement. Well, Article 19's position has been to um, uh, comment on, but certainly not to endorse any particular actor or, or um, body that may be created. So our onward engagement would be um, to continue to express our concerns around some of the details. Um, we, would, we will continue to push for a discussion around uh, not actually the broader principles, but actually the details of what it is and what uh, co-regulation, self-regulation should be aiming to achieve. Thanks very much. Okay. Um, I did a whole programme with Christopher Jeffries, actually, and I've talked to him. He wasn't aware of what had happened on Twitter before he uh, even started, and he was surprised to discover it. Uh, there was uh, a late-night meeting, uh, and Hugh Grant is not a figment of my imagination. But more to the point, um, uh, when it comes to the future behaviour of politicians and so on, well, frankly, I mean, I'd just rather not risk your good faith in their good sense in the future when it comes to press freedom. Sorry about that, but there it is. Um, and no, no, I, I, I don't. It's not my opinion. No, no, no. I, I, I understand that, but nevertheless, it's a, if you like, it's a gamble on the future. It's a belief about what will happen in the future, and I just happened, and we just happened not to share it. Um, when it comes to the, um, I'm afraid I don't have time to take up your point in the, in the your points, which were very well made about uh, uh, other points of freedom and so on. Um, I have a kind of, I do actually have a, we, we want to see many more independent people on the, uh, uh, on the press, uh, press's own regulative, uh, regulatory body and so on, and we want it to be tough. But I do actually have a worry uh, about, uh, I, do, I do have a worry in the way which is suggested about, if you like, a kind of normative process being established which chills out in the future. Uh, different forms of expression and frankly if I'm this is not index view this is my view somehow or other within the context of the law constraining us we've all got to become a great deal more discriminating about how we react to what we see and what we read because there is just so much of it and it is so much of it is unconstrainable 
on that note, we really do have to end. Uh, can, I, can you please thank our speakers?